Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Kesset. Nice to see you guys. Let's just get it out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Listen. Nobody else would have to go through this torment as they age. Uh, real quick, let me welcome, for those of you watching online, my name's Danny, and I'm going to explain what all these people are laughing at in just a second. But thank you so much for being here, especially if you're a visitor. Uh, I am uh, one of the pastors here and, and, and the primary speaker, but this is the first Sunday I have ever spoken with glasses. And, and <laughs> no, no, we don't applaud those kinds of things. People get glasses every day. Uh, I've needed glasses for about a year and a half, and uh, I started not driving at night. I was having my wife drive at night. And, and what's hard is I read just fine. I study just fine. Everything up close is just fine. It's the distance, like this back monitor and such, that I've been struggling with. And my wife uh, is the exact opposite. She's like, I'm really having a hard time reading. And so she went in for an eye exam, and I went with her. And... and <laughs> Yeah, and so the guy's like, sure, so we got it all checked out, and he's like, bro, you need glasses, and I was like, no, I don't, I, and, I, and, and, and let me share this, I wasn't sure what my, my push was until I actually got them. Uh, once I got them, I, I couldn't believe how much better I could see all the normal things from everybody who got glasses uh, and didn't wear them their whole lives, but uh, I, I didn't feel like me, and it really bothered me uh, this week. And so I, I wouldn't wear them, then I'd wear them, and then I wouldn't wear them, and then I'd wear them. And then I realized within the message that, that, that I, I have to preach from where I'm at. And so today, uh, we're going to title this message in gratefulness, Grateful for Who and How I Am. <laughs> Grateful for Who and How I Am. Because uh, this, these simple things, right, just these simple things, I feel much more Danny like this, although you're all a blur and I can't see what you think <laughs> about that. Like this, though, I can see all of your faces and, and it doesn't feel quite like me. And I thought that was really interesting that something as simple as a pair of glasses could really mess with your identity, could, could mess with kind of how you saw yourself. Now, if you've been going to Kesset for any length of time, you know that I don't preach a lot of identity sermons. I don't know why, but, but Identity 101 is like what all churches think they have to preach every single year about your identity in Christ and identity, identity. And it's so cliche that I just stay away from it. But then all of a sudden, over the last three days or so, I had like a, like a little identity crisis where I would look in the mirror or I would wash my hands at a restaurant and I was like, whoa, ugh. like, who is that? Uh, I, 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 just, I just was really bothered. And I thought I would sit within that and kind of unpack that a little bit for you guys because I do think the Holy Spirit did something for me. And I think last service was beautiful, what he showed. I, I asked a few other people and I'm going to bring a few different elements to you today to just help us look at this identity piece um, from a kind of a healthy, grateful place. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for everyone you brought here. I know that you orchestrated their steps to be here today, to, to hear from you, to, to receive from you. I pray that any distractions, anything that would keep them from understanding, Lord, just how you see them and how you love them 
and how you want to use what's inside their story to bring glory to you and bless their lives. I pray, Lord, that that would be what is accomplished today. We are thankful, we are grateful that you are a living God and that we can meet with you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to, in order to do this, because identity is kind of a funky thing, uh, identity starts with what you think you know about you. So it's kind of a weird preach because it's what you know best. You know yourself best, usually. You know kind of what other people see you as and what people expect from you. And if something changes, whether it be eyeglasses or circumstances, or you used to have a nice car, but you lost your job, so now you don't have as nice a car, or reverse, all of a sudden you're in a much nicer car and you just you feel different than you have before. These things are hard to talk about because they're so common and so everyday right in front of us. So I want to do something a little different, a little unique. I want to take a very common Bible story, one that you probably know fairly well, even if you're not a Christ follower, and I want to twist it up for you. I want to give you some other perspectives, and I want to give you a whole other approach to common Bible stories in order for you to take what you'll see within that story and apply it to your own life and what you see about yourself. Now, the man that I'm going to talk about is King David. And King David was a wonderful person to talk about if you're going to study identity. Because I don't know if there's anyone else in the Bible who knew himself better than King David. If you read through the Psalms, you will read passage after passage after passage of a man who is sharing his darkness, who is sharing his light, who is sharing his beauty, and then eventually, in later life, starts to share how God works through his identity. He's so clear and so profoundly distinct about the way God works that his poems and his sonnets are now used as scripture for us to understand how God sees us. A man with incredible identity would have to write these words. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the follower and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. I mean, we read these words and we're like, man, that's really awesome. You know, the Holy Spirit clearly filled him and he just wrote down. But, but we don't understand that there's so much story behind, behind sonnets like this, behind songs, poems, and psalms like this. There's so much experience being poured out onto this page by this man at this time in his life that we have to go back and discover how his identity was formed and why and how he could write these kinds of words. We start with David at the very beginning when he's anointed. He's out in the field. He's a shepherd. He's the youngest of a, a huge family. And this man walks into town and he says, I'm here on behalf of God to anoint a new king because the king Saul has turned wicked. That is leading our nation. And God says, I'm going to use someone no one knows from a whole new line, a whole new person. And he goes to a man and the man brings forth all his big and beautiful, bold sons. And everyone that steps before him, the Lord tells the prophet, not him, not him, not him. Finally, 
the man's sons are all, are all before him. And he goes, do you not have any other sons? And he goes, well, I have David, but, I mean, he keeps our sheep. And he goes, go get him. And they go get David, and he's quite young at this time, maybe 14, 15 years old, and he lives out with the sheep. He comes in for dinner, but he stays out at night and then comes in in the morning, and then he goes back out with the sheep. They just, that's what he does is he protects the family's interests from everything that would attack them. And so the boy comes smelling of sheep before the prophet, and the prophet goes, God wants you to be king. And David's like, what? And he pours oil over his head and he anoints him. We know this story. We know it well. Now, do you realize that if you continue to read in the story in the book of Samuel and what Samuel writes about David, you can pick through there and find out that after David was anointed king, he went back to still being shepherd. I can tell you right now that if any of my children at 15 years old were told they were going to be king or queen, they would never do chores again. (laughs) From that day right then, they would be like, I'm done. Clearly I'm important. I'm not doing chores. Dishes are for my servants, right? It it would just, it would be, it's what it is. But it says David, again, knowing who he is, even as a young boy, went out to do his work, his father's work. Well, eventually, David grows older. And and he ends up uh, becoming uh, a musician for King Saul. It's just, a, it's just an interesting way that God puts him with Saul. And, and Saul is tormented by his lack of anointing. And David is a musician. He's clearly an artist. He's a poet. And he ends up sort of uh, spending his time between the palace and playing for Saul and taking care of his father's sheep. And then one day, war comes. And it comes to Saul like this. It says that a group called the Philistines... In the second half of the 11th century BCE, the Philistines began moving east, winding their way upstream along the floor of the Elah Valley. Now, they weren't just invading Israel. They were actually trying to split Israel's kingdom in two by capturing the mountain ridge near Bethlehem. They were at a very strategic point. And at this strategic point, uh, Saul brought forth his army. Now, at this point, David is back with the shepherds because he, with the sheep, because he has no reason to be with Saul, for Saul is at war. But David's brothers, who are older, are with Saul. And so Saul is engaged in this battle, and he sees that he really has no way to win, and the other enemies see that there's really no way for, for them to win because there's this kind of an impasse. And so suddenly this man steps out of the crowd by the name of Goliath. Goliath is nearly seven feet tall. They give all these wonderful descriptions of how huge the man is. Point is, he was a big old boy. He walks out and he calls for something in this tradition called single combat. He says, you send your best and I'll stand here and whoever wins, that's the army that wins. And he kind of adds all of this eloquence around this calling by basically saying that I hear your God has ordained your people, has appointed your people, has anointed your people. Send your magical warriors out and let's see what they can do. And he begins to chant. And the soldiers behind him begin to chant. And then nobody comes out. They mock, they laugh, they go back to camp. He does this for days and days and days and days. And the hearts of the the Israelite soldiers begin to become small because what he's chanting against is their identity. He's saying, you say you're of the living God, and you say he's blessed you and he's given you all this land, then step forward within that confidence and defeat me. And their identity is challenged, and they accept that that they they don't know. 
what to do. They're uncomfortable with the situation, and so they begin to be afraid. Well, while this is happening, David, through the charge of his father, is bringing food to his brothers. He's bringing food to his brothers every three or four days, probably bringing cakes and cheeses and milk and other things. And, and every day he brings, and he doesn't, he's not really there at the right time to see the chant, but he can tell that the soldiers aren't as they should be. But he has a job to do with the, shep, with the sheep, so he goes back and does his job. Well, one day, the two collide. And one day, David hears Goliath's chant. And I like to imagine he's just handing out bread, and he's just listening while the men are grumbling, and he's just being this servant, and he's like, what did he just say? Did, did he just say something about, about God? Like, I thought this was just a war about land, but is he, is he challenging our identity? And see, David, that's not going to happen for him. Let's listen to when that's revealed. 1 Samuel 17, uh, verse 24 through 27 is when David hears this. It says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. But the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Those are their motivations for killing. That you could become married to the princess, you could no longer have to pay taxes, and you would be wealthy and, and famous throughout the land. Who will do this? But David, verse 26, is standing with the men who stood by there. And he says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And his version and his mission, his, uh, his motivation is revealed right here when he asks this question. This Philistine, and he says, takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. David says, I don't care about the, the daughter to be married. I don't care about the riches or the taxes. Who's going to take away the reproach from Israel? And who is going to kill this man who defies the armies of the living God? His entire motivation is different than everybody else. He cares about the anointing of the people, and he cares about uh, the fact that he's challenging the actual existence of his God. And so David decides that he's going to do something about it. And so he says, I'll fight him. Now, I don't think he just got to say, I'll fight him. And they were like, cool, uh, head on out right on this way, sir. This person, if they were killed, would represent the defeat of the entire army. I think David had to fight to fight Goliath. Now, how many times in your life have you, have you been, been ready to step into a new identity, but you didn't get this God-ordained, you know, fairy dust welcoming, and you were like, well, it must not be of God. David's like, no, I'll fight him. And they're like, you're a kid. I'll fight him. You're a boy. I'll fight him. You're a shepherd. He had to fight an entire fight before he even got to fight. How many times in your life and mine has God called you into a battle, but you're not willing to go because your version of God's blessing is what you misunderstand so much about this story? And I don't mean to offend all my Bible scholars in the room, but this whole story got turned upside down with me recently when I, well, if you haven't read the book, because I want to make sure I give credit to where I stole some of this from, otherwise you're like, hold on a second. I've heard this before, but Malcolm Gladwell's book about David and Goliath, there's a portion of it that unravels this, like I'm going to do for you, and it made so much more sense for me. See, we read these stories, and we think God came down and touched David, and he started to glow. 
And he got really strong and really fast. If you're a gamer, he powered up like a lot. His abilities went through the roof, right? His agility score was off the charts. Like you just, you have this vision of God leading this, this young man in such a way that, that no one could defeat him and everyone saw the aura of his presence. And so when you and I get ready to go into battle for God of any kind, if we don't think that, well, that's a Goliath, someone says, well, then I better be David. Lord, help me. Just fill me with your presence. And then we step in and people are like, you're lame. And it's like, I guess this isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe tomorrow, you're no good. Oh, okay, maybe, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe it's somebody else. But, but in truth, David had to fight to fight Goliath. And it wasn't some incredible anointing that you're going to see. It was his past and his experience that so, so clearly defined his identity. Look at 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 31. When the words that David were spoke heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. Then skip straight forward to verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in the hand and he approached the Philistine. This is so very important. And I want you to hear this and I want you to see this. David walked into a situation where the world said, these are the rules. This is what you wear to, to, be, to be successful. This is what you wear to, to go to combat. And so Saul meets with David, and David somehow convinces Saul to let him fight. And Saul goes, okay, but only if you wear my armor, the best armor in the land. David says, yeah, okay. And he puts on the armor, he's standing there, and he tries to move, and he's like, Saul, I can't, I can't do this. Well, David, why not? This is a warrior. This is what people wear that do great things for God. And David's like, yeah, but I haven't tested these. Now, anytime in scripture someone proclaims something, you also have to look at what else they're proclaiming. By David saying, I haven't tested these things, and then going out and getting a sling and a stone and a staff and, 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 uh, and, and, and proclaiming these things, he's saying, but I have tested these. See, David was a shepherd, and he shares with Saul that when a bear would come from my flock, I would kill it. When a lion would jump upon me, I would grab it by the mane, and I would kill it. He says, I've already faced all kinds of giants, and I know how to fight them because I've tested them. God has been preparing David for this day. David didn't walk on, out onto this battlefield uh, weak and, 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 and without an edge. And my friends, if you were to stop and just realize what was really happening here, you would see that David was just being David. And he was walking out with what was tested his sling and his stones and his staff. And he knew that God built him for this moment. Now, here's some other beautiful things that you need to realize about this situation, about how God sets people up for battles. And it's the battles themselves that often reveal all the work God has already done. Uh, in Malcolm's book, he talks about how ancient armies had three kinds of warriors, especially during this time. They had cavalry, which were armed men on horseback or in chariots. They had infantry, which were foot soldiers wearing armor, carrying swords and shields. And they had projectile warriors, or what today would be called artillery. And they were archers and, most importantly, slingers. See, David was a slinger. 
Slingers had a leather pouch attached on two sides by a long strand of rope. They would put a rock or a lead ball into the pouch, swing it around in increasingly wider and faster circles, and then release one end of the rope, hurling the rock forward. Slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice, but an experienced slinger uh, in his hands would have a devastating weapon. Paintings from medieval times show slingers hitting birds in mid-flight. Irish slingers were said to be able to hit a coin from as far away as they could see it, which would be really far with these glasses that I have on now. (laughs) And in the Old Testament book of Judges, slingers are described as being accurate within a hair's breadth. An experienced slinger could kill or seriously injure a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. As a matter of fact, the Romans had a special set of tongs made just to remove stones that hadn't been embedded in some poor soldier's body by a slinger. This was a legit practice, and David had tested it, and he was ready for the day. The historian Barak Halpern explains that these three kinds of warriors balance one another like each gesture gesture in the game of paper, rock, scissors. Infantry with their long pikes and armor could stand up to cavalry. Cavalry could, uh, could in turn defeat projectile warriors because the horses move too quickly for artillery or slingers to take in proper aim. And the projectile warriors were deadly against infantry because a, listen to this description, because a lumbering soldier Weighed down with armor was a sitting duck for a slinger who was launching projectiles from a hundred yards away. When Saul tries to dress David in his armor and give him a sword, he is operating under that warfare assumption. He says, this is what Goliath is. He's an infantryman. Now get out there and, and go to battle as an infantryman. And David's like, have you seen him? Oh, no. I'm going to go with what I, what's been tested. I'm a slinger, bro. And so I'm going to go out with what I know. And so he walks out onto this field with nothing but his sling. But we feel like he walks out onto his field with nothing but God. And that's what we tell people. We're like, just get out there and believe. And people walk out there in their swords and their stuff, and the giant just smashes them, right? And they go, well, must not have had enough faith. This is all the time people's reasons for failure. Must have not had enough faith. Must have had some sin in your life. Must have had some brokenness in your story. No, let me tell you why people fail over and over and over and over again. Because they buy into the world's way of warfare instead of trusting how God has already tested them. This is what we're built to do. Do you know how disrespectful I was as a child to my mother because of this mouth? By far the most difficult of the four children she had. And she honed that ability within me through all kinds of tempering that now God has tested and that I used to do what I'm doing before you right now. I just didn't one day walk on stage and go, I think I can talk a lot. I was talking a lot at seven. And it wasn't good. But God was testing me and training me for what he wanted me to do. You, it isn't that the battles you've lost, you've lost because you weren't prepared. First off, they might not even have been your battles. And second, they could have been your battles, but you believed to Saul, someone in your life that spoke into you. Well, this is how you got to have warfare. Man, stop that stuff. However you were raised, whatever's built within you right now, that's the stuff you sling. That's the stuff you throw. You walk out into that field with you being you, and that's as much anointing as anybody else is ever going to get. Because David did walk out with only God. 
But David had been practicing and being trained by God from the very beginning for the warrior and for the moment that was. It's a beautiful picture. It's a really important theology to twist and turn inside out because we think of David and Goliath as God using a small person to accomplish a great thing. And really, that's not at all what the story's about. It's about a man who was tried and true to who he was inside his identity. The only man who believed that God was who he was and that David was his Israelite who walked out on there and said, I'll take you because of him and because of who I am. This is the beautiful place that the story is set up within. This is what's going in through David's mind when he approaches Goliath. It says, verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. The reason he had a shield bearer is because his armor weighed 100 pounds and he couldn't carry both his shield and all his armor and his spear because he was an infantryman and he was fully committed to that. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I've never understood that part. Like, is David like, I will kill you, beautiful boy. Get over here. You're so incredibly handsome. I'm going to smack the handsome off your face. Like, I never, I don't know why that's important, but, but it says, that's what it says, handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said, maybe it was a shield bearer, like, oh, sir, he's mighty handsome. I don't know. I don't, Really? Kill me some handsome people tonight. And the Philistine said to David, this is his response, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. The really important phrase here is come to me. Goliath wants David to fight on his terms. Come to me. The distance is maybe 80, 70 yards. Come over here by me where my swords work, where my weapons work, where my thinking work. This is a whole other lesson on when you dive into the world and then get cut up by the world and then go tell all your Christian friends, I don't know what happened. What do you mean you don't know what happened? You're dating someone who doesn't even believe in God that you met in a bar on a Saturday night who you moved into two weeks later. Are you serious? I don't know why this relationship is not working out. Come to me, the world says. David says, no, that's okay. I'll stay over here. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. (laughs) He's a little cocky at this point in the story. And I will give the dead bodies, I will uh, cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is what? Not a David in the land, but a God in Israel. But a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. I want to tell you something really, really powerful about what David's about to do. I want you to see it one more time. Uh, Aiton Hirsch, a ballistics expert, expert with the Israeli Defense Forces, recently did a series of calculations showing that a typical sized stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 35 meters would have hit Goliath's head with a velocity of 34 meters per second. 
This is more than enough to penetrate his skull and render him unconscious. And then I like this other quote. Goliath had as much chance against David as any Bronze Age warrior with a sword would have against an opponent with an armed 45 caliber automatic pistol. See, David changed the game. And Goliath said, come to me. And David said, I'm about to load up. And that's exactly what happened. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David, which by the way is a worship position, just for those of you who are picking up on that little God. God's like, oh, you will bow down. Everyone will bow down to me. Goliath bowed down a little earlier than the rest of us. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their companion was dead, they ran away. Which is what the world tends to do when people are, well, I'll put this quote up. When people are victorious, for apparent reasons that they don't understand. And David was victorious because he operated, David was victorious not because he operated like everyone expected him to, but because he operated how he was built to be. He operated as he was built to be. Jesus himself mentions the importance of knowing this truth about oneself in a very simple reminder that's often missed. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna share you this, show you this. I'm gonna let you read this and then I'm gonna show you it in real life. This is it. This is uh, the great commandment. Someone asked Jesus, Look at it, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many loves do you see or did you hear inside this verse? There's there's two that most people recognize. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. But there's actually a third love inside this verse, and it's yourself. See, when you have identity in yourself, when you recognize who you are and why you are, you can love other people. But when you hate who you are, when you're uncomfortable with who you are, when you are afraid of who you are, then naturally you're hating other people, afraid of other people, and not loving other people like they're supposed to be loved because you can't love yourself. This is the third love. This is what God says we are to do. Love him, love others like we love ourselves. Because when we love ourselves and our identity is in God, then we can walk out into any storm facing any giant, no matter the obstacle, no matter the situation, in a powerful and confident way because we've been tested our whole lives by God who loves us and fully prepared for everything he has for us. This is is the power of the story of David. This is the power of having an identity reborn in Christ. And this is the power of what Jesus is alluding to here. Love him, love others, and love yourself. And in that way, God can accomplish amazing things. Amen? I want to show you it. I want you actually to be able to put a face to it. I'm going to invite up a man by the name of Rusty Wales. Rusty, can you come up here, please? Can you guys uh, give Rusty a hand? Now, the best part of what I just had you do, 
uh, was applauded for no reason because Rusty cannot hear you. Rusty is 100% deaf, and I'm going to show you something right away. Rusty, let's teach them. I want you to give Rusty a hand by applauding so Rusty can see you applauding. Okay, Rusty is a man who's been part of our deaf ministry for a long time. Welcome. Thank you for being here. This is me up here on the screen here. That's who I've been. Rusty's a former high school teacher at California School for the Deaf, rehabilitation counselor, director at human services agencies. He's a part-time ASL teacher at colleges and universities, and he's a happy retiree with too many hobbies. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> now, Rusty, you, I talked to you about what I was going to do today and how we were talking about identity, and you started teaching me things about, about your story that helped you understand your identity that really touched my heart, and I thought we would share with these folks today. So can you just share in you know, a minute or so just sort of about your deafness? and about how you see that today, and then I have a couple questions. Certainly, certainly. Um, I was born deaf. Um, it seems to be a generational thing because my older sister was also born deaf. My parents, however, were not deaf and had, were not prepared to have deaf children, and they were absolutely stunned and grieved. They didn't know what to do with two deaf children. Um, so my sister and I were, were overwhelming to them. Uh, they were in denial. They learned a bit about teaching, how to try to teach us how to speak. And they got involved with a speech teacher trying to teach us how to speak English and uh, uh, read lips. And I have to say, it didn't work. <laughs> they put the most powerful headphones on you. And I could feel the vibrations in my head, but I had no idea what the noise was that was causing that. And there are some deaf individuals who might have some residual hearing, but I didn't have any. And it just felt like, uh, I don't know, it was like Saul's armor on David, you mm. know, and I couldn't get to my sling. Mm. Good <laughs> and, tie. Uh, That's a good tie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I needed to use my hands. And other people looked down on me and said that that wasn't, the, my sister and I uh, weren't, you know, real people. My sister picked up a little speech, but I, I did, never did. And I realized, you know, I was meant to be deaf. I was meant mm. to use my hands to communicate with people. I can read. I use my eyes for all kinds of things. And they, I'm used for God's purpose. And for that purpose, I was born deaf. And he gave me this gift. Yeah, yeah. So and you, that's how I grew up. So you identify proudly as deaf. Um, and, and I want you guys to understand just how significant that is because I asked Rusty this, so I'm going to ask him again. Rusty, if I could offer you a pill, a red pill or a blue pill, that would allow you to hear, if I was to Christianize this, which is something you should never do, but if I was, if I was to be able to pray for you so that you could hear today right now or choose a pill to hear right now. I'm not done. I'm not done. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. Please, I was gonna, please. I was going to sweeten the deal. And also some money. There's some money in there. So I just... <laughs> I have no interest whatsoever. Millions of dollars couldn't do it for me. Nothing. Because it would completely blow my mind for who I am made to be. I am me. And I'm happy as me. I don't need to hear. There's nothing evil or bad or negative about who I am in this world. Doctors try to play God sometimes. They try to fix people. And uh, I don't need to be fixed. 
I don't need to be fixed. I am valuable in my deaf culture exactly as I am. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How do you know that was for you? That could have been. For you. <laughs> um, got those eyes. <laughs> I want to. I want to give you. I want to give you a few things that Rusty pointed out to me that are advantages to being deaf. And I had these put up on the screen. These are advantages to being deaf. Uh, one, I can concentrate on many tasks I do without being interrupted. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I can sleep peacefully. And then he added, "That's how I got a movie part when I was the only one-month-old that could sleep peacefully during a movie." He was in a movie uh, when he was one month old. That's right. All right. Absolutely, month-old couldn't hear things. So I, I can chat about anything with my ASL buddies underwater doing our scuba diving. We <laughs> <laughs> full conversations under there. <laughs> uh, I think there's two more. Is that right? I can talk with someone in distances or through windows without having to yell. Hey there. <laughs> hey there. I'm out outside morning long. You don't mind uh, getting lunch ready? I'm about done. You know, don't need to yell. Nice, quiet sign language. Uh, last one. I can pray solitary regardless of background noises. Rusty yes. showed me a few other. I can turn the world off. I can be totally into God. He was sharing with me that there's lots of different things that make his culture special. Little things like uh, when they leave a room, they make sure and touch someone because they don't hear each other leave the room. How we would leave a room if we were in a group setting and I would notice, oh, you're going to the bathroom and I can hear you leave. In their culture, they cannot. Uh, they also hug a lot. Uh, share about that maybe, Rusty, just those special things that, that are very unique to your culture. Yes. Deaf people, um, we're physical and we... Um, we don't depend on that background noise. We depend on totally the visual aspect of our everyday world. Another example would be the lights. We don't do so well in the dark. <laughs> the interpreter, as you see, has to stand up here with a light on him. And if the light is not particularly right, you'll see us, you know, yell and scream over in our little section about, wait a minute. We also use the light to get your attention to, to say hello or stomp on a wooden floor so that you can feel the vibrations <laughs> to get the other person's attention. You guys will yell across the room. Uh, that doesn't do any good for us, and yeah. we're just as happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rusty, thank you. Thank you for being part of our community and sharing your perspective and kind of adding some identity perspective to, to us here at Kesson. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Wait, 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 wait. I have to say something. Don't, don't applaud yet. <laughs> uh, there's lots of deaf people here that I want you to recognize. And you see that we are people contented as who we are. We don't regret being deaf. We are not disabled. And we want to thank you, the members of Kesed Church, for making us feel welcome for bringing a team of the best interpreters in town to make it possible for us to share in this experience. Thank you. Yeah, we are you. grateful. If, uh, if you, if you want to talk with Rusty afterwards, one other uh, just neat deaf culture thing, whenever you're talking to a deaf person and there's an interpreter there, talk right to the deaf person, not to the interpreter. Just listen to the interpreter. They're the ones that, that look away, yeah. but they'll look back. It's, it's kind of an important thing. So if you meet us. him or any of our deaf community here, talk right to them. So Rusty, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I want to give you one more closing perspective before we transition into a worship song. There was a video that was shared with me just recently that I thought uh, 
identified some really, uh, another beautiful perspective on this because identity can be things you're born with or identity can also be affected by choices that you make. And so I wanted to show you a video of, of uh, it's, not a, it's not a faith-based video, but it's a video I think that drives home this beautiful idea that God wants you to be you. He wants you to, to, to experience all that he has for you, no matter how you're made, no matter the choices you've made, uh, no matter where you are, he wants to impact your life in a powerful way. So please watch. It's been the privilege of my life for 30 years to have been taught everything of value by gang members. And in the last few years, they've taught me how to text, and so I'm really grateful to them because <laughs> I find it sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people. And, and I'm pretty dexterous at it, uh, LOL and OMG and BTW. And the homies have taught me a new one, OHN, which apparently stands for, oh, hell no. <clears throat> and I've been using that one quite a bit lately. My alma mater, Gonzaga University, uh, called me and said uh, they were going to have a big talk on a Tuesday night with a thousand people. And so I, you know, uh, I said, sure. And they said, can you bring two homies with you? And I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill of seeing gang members panicked in the sky. <laughs> I've never picked anybody more terrified of flying than this guy, Mario. He was just absolutely petrified. In fact, he was hyperventilating. <gasps> and we hadn't even boarded the plane yet. And then our, our flight crew arrives and I see two flight attendants, females, and they both have very large cups of Starbucks coffee and they're schlepping up the front steps. And Mario goes, when are we gonna board the plane? I said, as soon as they sober up the pilots. <laughs> I should tell you that Mario in our 30 year history at Homeboy is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. His arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end so that when he's lying in his coffin, there's no doubt. <laughs> and so I'd never been in public with him and we're walking and people are like this and mothers are clutching their kids more closely. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me. They'll say, Mario, he sells baked goods at the counter at our cafe. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each. They were terrified, but they did a good job. And honest to God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance, otherwise you'd get scorched. I invite them up for Q&A, and, and I said, yes, ma'am, and a woman stands, and she says, yeah, I got a question, it's for Mario. First question out the gate. And Mario steps up to the microphone, he's a tall drink of water, skinny, and clutching the microphone, and he's terrified, yes. And she says, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? And Mario clutches his microphone and he's just terrified and he's trembling and he's getting a hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say when, when finally he blurts out, I just, 
and he stops and he retreats back to his microphone clutching terrified retreat but he wants to get this whole sentence out I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me and there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands and now it's her turn to cry and she says why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you you are loving you are kind you are gentle you are wise I hope your kids turn out to be like you and a thousand total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping and all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of people, strangers, had returned him to himself and they were returned to themselves. And I think you go from here to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. And you stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And you stand with those whose dignity has been denied. And you stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And you stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. Make those voices heard. tested by God and prepared for the life that he destined you to live does it look like you expected probably not is it a result of how you're born or choices you've made I don't know I was sharing some of this message with a friend a Christian friend who went through a really difficult divorce and he stopped me and he said I know exactly what you're saying because when I come across another believer who's been through a divorce we're instant friends I don't know how many people out here are cancer survivors can you raise your hand if you are a proud cancer survivor me too and I can have a conversation with cancer survivors that you people who were privileged enough to have cancer don't get to have we have a beautiful deaf culture we have a culture of people who were incarcerated. We have a culture of people who were addicts. We have a culture of single moms and single dads. We have a culture that's built of all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And what God says is that he can work with whatever choices or however you've been made. He can work with that and does work with that and wants to work with that 
to bring beautiful testing into your life so that when it's time for you to speak for the voiceless, to shut down those who pour against God, you'll be ready. Some of you, you're ready right now. You're ready right now. And you need to accept Jesus Christ into your life. And if you want to do that, you don't even have to close your eyes. You simply say right now in your heart, God, it's me. I believe in you. I'm tired of running from you. You've been testing me. You've been preparing me. And I accept you as my Lord and Savior. You say it how you want to say it. And instantly, instantly, my friends, you will be part of a community that he has already set up for you. We get the chance to be the church. But we have to love him, love each other, and love ourselves in order for it to work. I hope you'll join me in being that church. We're going to close with a song called Worthy of It All. And the reason we're going to sing that song is because God is worthy of all the things we've been through, all the ways we're different. And we're going to sing that to him. And I'm going to have my friend Aaron lead you in the worship. Because I don't know if you realize, but God, he also knows sign language. He can receive that worship like he can receive yours. And so she's going to be our worship leader. And I hope you join us, however you worship, inside with your vocals. If you want to follow along with sign, it doesn't matter. God's worthy of it all. So will you stand with me as we bring our song to him and all God's people said, amen. Amen.